But in chapter 8 of Acts, we're going to be seeing this transition in the book of Acts. And in this transition, we're going to see a few different individuals, one of them being a guy named Philip, uh, one's uh, Simon, a magician, and then we're going to see Peter and John enter this scene. Um, and we're just going to see how this interaction happened in a place called Samaria. Samaria is a place that um, Scripture speaks of uh, often. Uh, one of the most common places and reasons we know of Samaria is found in John chapter 6, I believe. I uh, could be wrong there. But it's this moment in which Jesus interacts with a woman at the well, which was the woman at the well of Samaria, outside the Sikhar, outside of Samaria. And the reason why that place is common for us in that story is that Jesus interacts with a woman at the well, and this is a woman that had been divorced and remarried and then living again with another woman, another husband, another man that was not her husband, um, and really just bringing out and pointing out her sin and her need for him and all of those things. But what was so unique about that story is Samaria was historically a place in which the Jews avoided. It was a place that they would even go around it so that they would not go through it. And the reason being is that the Jewish individuals did not like Sumerian individuals. This is because, John 4, John 4 thank you, uh, John 4. And this, the reason why this was the case, though, is because the Sumerians were essentially a byproduct of exile. And so Sumerians were uh, essentially half Jewish individuals and half Gentile individuals. So there were people that Jewish individuals would marry Gentiles and then they would have children. And it's not a racial thing. It was a religious thing, okay? And so there was some uh, disheartening and, and just ill affections for them. But we shouldn't be misunderstood as the Samaritans did not care for the Jews either. Okay, so it was a both-sided thing. Um, but the reason why we know Samaria is because that is the place. That is the place that in God's sovereignty, Jesus uh, needed to reach this individual and preach the gospel there. But it's also in the humanity of Christ we see that the reason he stops there that day is because he was growing tired. And so just amazing side effect of God's, uh, Jesus' humanity and his godness in display. And we know of Samaria because of that story. That's why we not only, that's not the only reason we know of it, but that's why it's so famous and so quick to our hearts and minds when we hear the word Samaria. But then the other question at hand is, who is Philip? We know Samaria is this individual with half uh, Gentiles, half Jews that had married and had children, and so therefore kind of a mixed bag of religious practices. So what about Philip? Who is Philip? Well, if you look at Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 6, we see that this is moment in which they choose the seven to serve. In chapter, in verse 5, it says, And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith of, and of the Holy Spirit. So Stephen is the one we watched in Saul die by the hands of the Jewish leaders just a few weeks ago. And then it says right after that, Philip. So Philip is one of these seven men that were chosen by the apostles and by the church to serve the church in a very specific way. Then we know who Peter and John are. So we don't have to jump into that too detailed. 
And we'll find out in just a little bit who Simon is. So with all of that being said, let's just read the scripture now, and then we will uh, pray together following it. It says this, And Saul approved the execution, and then arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him. But Saul was ravishing the church and entering home after home, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. They paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with, this, with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus." They, then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on the hands of the apostles, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. Because you thought you could attain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they testified and spoke in the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we thank you for it. God, this is some historical moments in the life of your church where you did miraculous things in the life of your people. God, you redeemed and saved souls. God, you performed signs and wonders and miracles. 
God, my prayer would be is that we would look at this account and we would understand it rightly so that this was something you have done. And Father, you desire to do very similar things in our lives today. And so we pray for those things to occur. In your son's holy name, amen. It could be easy for me, and I'll be upfront about this. It would be very easy for me to take the verses 14 through verses 24 and get stuck there. Okay? 14 through 24 and get stuck there. And I'm going to avoid that. Um, and the reason why I'm going to avoid that is because tonight in community group, we plan to kind of jump a little bit deeper into those things. And the reason why we're not going to do it this morning is because the main point of the text has nothing to do with when did the Holy Spirit come upon these people. The main point of the text is very simply that God was doing something and God was accomplishing through his spirit the great commission in which he charged his people with. See, when you look at Acts chapter 1, look, at, look back at verse 8 with me. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Certainly we have seen this in Acts chapter 2. It says, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. We saw that in the life of Stephen. And then it says, In all of Judea, we're going to touch on that in just a second, and in Samaria. But it goes on to say, in the ends of the earth. And not to get too far ahead, when you flip over to chapter 11, if you flip over to chapter 11 and you look at verse 19, it says, And now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Sapirus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Why is that significant? Is because in chapter 12, we see this transitioning to a man named Barnabas and Saul in chapter 13 that would be sent off to reach the Gentiles. So right now, we're at this transitional point in the book of Acts to where everything before this, we saw the work of God in Jerusalem. And now we're going to see from chapter 8 to the end of chapter 12, the work of God in Judea and in Samaria. And then what we're going to do as a church is pause when we get through with Judea and Samaria. And we're going to look at something in the Old Testament and then come back and look at God's work in reaching the Gentiles to the ends of the age. Okay. And so the reason why I'm pointing all of this out is because in chapter 8, we see this transitioning period, and we don't need to miss this, because this is the heart of what Paul, not Paul, Luke, is trying to explain here in the first eight verses of this text. Look at verse 1 with me. And I know Troy preached this text already, but it's transitioning us into the topic at hand. It says, And Saul approved of his execution, meaning that of Stephen's, Remembered, he is the one. It says that they laid his coats down at the feet of. So Saul approves this execution. Saul is known as Paul later in the book of Acts because he is the one that is dramatically converted to Christ on the road to Damascus. So Saul approves this execution. And then arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except, except the apostles. 
Now, what does the all mean here? Because certainly it's not all believers. Maybe it's all of the other disciples. We know of about 120. And so maybe, just maybe, it's the other 108 individuals. We're not certain here. The word all is just used here to say that many people left Jerusalem and went through Judea and Samaria. But I don't want us to miss what caused them to go. What caused them to go was a great persecution. Why is this significant? Because God's calling to them was to wait for the Spirit. And in waiting for the Spirit, they would be witnesses. But not witnesses only in Jerusalem, but where? Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So God is fulfilling His will and His purpose for the life of the disciples right now in Acts chapter 8. And how is He fulfilling that? It's through persecution. It made me think of this past week as we're reading through this five-day-a-week reading plan. We read Matthew chapter 10. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, Matthew 10, verse 16, says this. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep amidst the root wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent of doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how to speak or what to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you that will speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child and his children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And they will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next town. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all of the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Listen to the first part of that last verse. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Why is this significant? Is this was a very specific calling for the disciples before Christ's crucifixion. But the reality would be no different for them whenever Christ would be resurrected and ascended back into heaven with his father. Is they were called to be his witnesses and to be witnesses to both Jew and Gentile and that they should flee to the next town. And we see this lived out in the first two verses of chapter 8. What is causing them to leave? Is certainly God's sovereignty and God's desire and will to be unfolded in their lives. But what is the means in which they are leaving? It's because of persecution. Verse 2. Devout men buried Stephen and made lamentations over him. It would be very easy for the people to look at a person like Stephen and blame him for the difficulties that had faced the church. If he would have been more tactful, or if he would have been more quiet, or if he would have said things just slightly different, then maybe we wouldn't be leaving Jerusalem to go all of these other places. But we don't see that happening here. What we see happening here is devoted men to following Christ, bury Stephen, and they made great lamentations over him because they respected him. They loved him. 
they saw what he went through at his death that furthered the gospel in the church of Christ. But Saul was ravishing the church and entering house after house, dragged off men and women, committed them to prison. We could pass over this, but this is what led the people away. It was the persecution that was at the end of Saul. And which is a very, very amazing thing to look at chapter 13, which is some years later, but only four, only five verse chapters away in our context here, that the same man, man named Saul is now going and proclaiming the same gospel in which he killed people over. And I would argue, as I've done before, as we've looked at this story, is God used the words of Stephen to soften the hurt hearts of a man named Saul that would then be made clear to him in the road of Damascus when Christ would reveal himself to him directly. So Paul is ravaging the church but the church is not being destroyed, but it is furthering. And it is furthering because God is using the persecution of his church to fulfill his sovereign will in reaching lost souls in Judea and Samaria and eventually the ends of the age, earth. So now we move to a perfect example of how this is being fulfilled in the life of Philip. Starting in verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria proclaiming them to them Christ. I want to pause here because we, we looked at this earlier and I referenced chapter 6. But David correct me it was chapter 4. Christ had been taught there. He himself and his disciples preached the gospel in Samaria. And so what they're coming to do now is lay it down on the foundation in which Christ had already built. And in doing so, we see two responses. And it's no different than when we proclaim the gospel now. It's no different when we share the gospel with individuals. The response is either unbelief or belief. It says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. And the crowd with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and what? And saw the signs that he did, which were for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were being healed. And there was much joy in that city. Now, just like any other time in the book of Acts so far, what we've looked at is that when God did signs and wonders in the early church, and I would argue when God still does a miraculous and amazing things, when he still does signs and wonders today, there's a reason behind it. And it's because those signs and wonders are pointing to something and pointing to someone that is greater than the miraculous things being done in front of the people. All they are doing is making the statements be more alive and true to the individuals that were hearing them. But what I want us to notice here, as we flip back to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. And this is, I think, a joyous thing for us. We certainly see that this was a joyous time for the city of Samaria. But this is a joyous time for us. Because what we see in Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 8. 
is God doing a miraculous thing through Philip in Samaria. But I think what we should also see is that we have a God. We serve a God. We serve a living and holy God that answers the prayers of his people. How do I know that to be true? Look at verse 23 through 31. It says, When they released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and elders said to them. What's so ironic is when I preached this text, it was the one other time that we were in this part of the building. Okay? It, just, it hit me just now. It says, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who make the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of the Father David, your servant, said in the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This first part of the prayer, I'm not going to re-preach this, is just saying, God, you did exactly what you had planned to do. You are bigger than Pontius. You are bigger than Pilate. You are bigger than the Gentiles and the Jews. God, you are greater than all of these things. You are fulfilling your purposes and your wills, your will. But listen to their plea here. In verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. And grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through your name, the name of your holy, 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 holy servant, Jesus. This is the prayer in which the church gathered and they prayed not only for Peter and John, but for themselves. And what we should rightly know is that the men in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, that were appointed as deacons, essentially, to serve the church, that Stephen and Philip would have been part of that church in that moment. And so what we see in Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 8, is God answering the prayers of his people. Because what we see in this is certainly boldness to proclaim the gospel, even though persecution had already occurred. And what we also see is that God was doing signs and wonders and miraculous things in the life of his people. Why? So that the other people that were witnessing them would come to know Christ as their Savior. So in chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, we see the furthering of God's church through persecution as a big whole uh, concept. Then verses 4 through 8, we see a specific moment of this. But in that moment, what we should see is that God was answering the prayers of his people. What I want to point out there is one practice that we have just really tried to implement. And it's not something that is of me or any of our elders, but just of people within this church, is that we've prayed wholeheartedly for individuals that we know, that do not know Jesus, that need to come to know Christ, and for opportunities to proclaim the gospel to them. 
We also pray for various other things in our lives. If it would be a healing of individuals or it would be for opportunities just, just to get to know individuals. And what I want us to be seeing in this and what the joy we should find in this is God will answer those prayers. And the reason why I know God will answer those prayers and I am confident in that is because it's not as if we are, no offense boys, a nine or ten year old boy praying for some great gift at Christmas time for our own good and pleasures. But what we're praying for is for God to do the work of saving his people. And so regardless of how long you have to pray over those things, I want to encourage you to pray for them because God does miraculous things today. It may look different in time to time, but God's Spirit does what God's Spirit does. And we should trust that. Now, Let's go through 9 through 25 without me getting bogged down. So let's go. It says, But there was a man named Simon who had a previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was some body great. They all paid attention to him for the least of the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that God called great. And they paid attention to him because of a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So we're going to pause there. We got this man named Stephen, uh, Simon, not Stephen, Simon. This man named Simon that is a magician in the area of Samaria, and he did amazing things, wonders, and signs. He was called, well, he actually says in verse 9, saying that he himself was somebody great. So he is boasting in himself that I am somebody great, is what he would proclaim to the people. And they believed it. He was somebody great. It specifically says, man, in this, the power of God that is called great. So this isn't like, uh, this isn't like Bar Jesus or the magician that we see in, I think, chapter 13 and 14. Uh, this is a little bit different, but he's certainly claiming to have some miraculous power. And it seems as if the people are believing that it was from God. We don't know if he's claiming that or if they're just assuming that because it's miraculous things. But they have it. he has their attention. They're paying attention to him. They, they are listening and following him to some extent or another. But then this guy named Philip comes on the scene. And he begins to preach the good news about the kingdom of God and of the name of Jesus Christ. And they were baptized, both men and women. So Philip comes on the scene in Samaria. He begins to preach the gospel. But not only does he begin to preach the gospel, but he begins to do signs and wonders that were apparently greater than that of Simon's. Oh, we're going to certainly see in a moment an even greater sign is done. But they believe. And they were baptized. Which, if you pause there, you would think that would be enough. See, so often we, we kind of stop the process of following Jesus right there. That people believe on Christ, they're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they, they, they're just left at the, the, the door put the door of the society and world around them and they left to fend for themselves. Or some people would even believe that all they have to do is be baptized and then they can be saved. But what we see in this is baptism is clearly not enough. There has to be something more than that. And what I would argue is that it is a miraculous change in the heart of man by the Spirit of God. 
Starting in verse 13, we'll pick back up there. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed. And he was amazed. Now when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For they had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Not only does he offer money, but this is what he says. Give me this power also, so that anyone who I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. There's some disconnect here in the life of Simon between believing on Christ and being baptized. There's a disconnect in those two things and actually living a life that was transformed by the Spirit of God. I was actually listening yesterday as we were traveling to North Alabama, uh, traveling back home. Sarah and I, uh, I'm not sure if this is one she listened to with me or not, but listening to Piper, John Piper preached this same text and um, he used this analogy, and I thought it was a wonderful analogy. I don't normally steal analogies from people, but um, I don't think I am if I'm giving him credit. But he used this analogy of a mother that has a daughter, a young daughter per se, that sits on her lap and points out at a tree and says, look at that red bird there. And for those who have kids, you're not going to be surprised by what I have to say next. And those who don't have kids, not going to be surprised by what I have next. Way too often in moments like that, what the kid does is look at the fingertip of the mother and says, where? Or just looks right here, right? Instead of looking out at what's being pointed to, they're only looking at the hand and which is doing the pointing. Certainly that's the case. I could bring Lottie in here now and I could show you all the display, but I'm not going to. I could probably even use Elijah to display that for me, but that's okay. Um, Nick would probably do the same thing. No, I'm playing. Um, But the point I'm making here, and the point Piper kind of pulled out in that, is that Simon was no different than that small child on the mother's lap. He saw the thing pointing, which was the sign, and was amazed so much by that that he missed what it was pointing to, which was Christ. See, Simon may have been a believer, and he may have been baptized But we don't see a true conversion here because look at the words of Peter. And Peter, he's a man after my heart because he does not mix his words here, uh, especially if you take it back to original Greek. Um, He says, but Peter said to them, may your silver silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of of your wickedness of yours, and pray that the Lord, that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that in you the gall of bitterness and that it is a bond of iniquity. Peter looks at this guy and says, You are not one of us. You have neither lot nor matter in this. He looks at him and he essentially... How do I want to say this gracefully? The phrase, may your silver perish with you. 
He's saying your destination is hell and your silver will go there with you, okay? And so what he's saying here is you do not trust and believe in this Jesus because the gall of yourself, the intent of your heart, the bitterness, the iniquity, you're missing this, Simon, is what he's saying. He's saying repent and believe. He doesn't just cast out judgment on Simon. He gives him an opportunity to repent of his sins and turn away from them. But the sad thing is he doesn't. He's so caught up in who he he is in himself. This is what he says back. And Simon answered, pray for me. To the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Simon was not at a place to believe on the one in which the signs pointed to. Because he was unwilling to do the work of repentance in his own life. It's clear in scripture that we cannot pray for repentance for other people. But that person has to believe upon their own heart in Christ Jesus to be saved. In verse 25, it says, Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many of the villages of Samaria. So Peter and John go back home. But what I want to kind of focus back on, without going too far into this, is that we miss some of this encounter, focusing on Simon's response to his false belief in Christ. Because what we also see in this is people that actually believed. Look here in verse 14. Now when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that the Samaritans had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they may receive the Holy Spirit, for they had not yet fallen on them, that they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. These individuals, prior to receiving the Spirit of God, were saved. Now, the question that we're going to dig into tonight, the question at hand in this is throughout Scripture. Like, for example, Romans chapter 8, verses 9 and 10 says this. Verses 8, 9, and 10 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. In fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But then you also see back in, let's see, Acts chapter 2. You see Peter's sermon. Sorry, hold on. I'm not finding it right now, and I apologize. I will have it tonight. 
where we essentially see the command of Peter to repent of their sins, believe on Christ, and receive the Spirit of God. So the question at hand in this part of the text is why did they not receive the Spirit of God at conversion? If God's Spirit is what draws an individual to salvation, if that's how they are redeemed and saved by the convicting of sins, as we answered the question this morning for the children, if that's how one is saved, why did the Spirit not fall upon them at the moment in which they were converted to Christianity by the believing upon Christ? That's what we're going to discuss in detail later. But what I just want to simply say here, and this is where I land on it um, in just very brief detail, is very simply that this was a unique moment in the history of God's work of salvation upon His people, that He was a clear sign for those in Samaria and for the apostles and for all involved that God's work of salvation has not only been in Jerusalem and Judea, but now in Samaria. Just like on the day of Pentecost, it was a specific moment and an unusual moment for the work of God to be displayed that what we see in the life of Philip and John and Peter in Samaria was this moment in which God was making clear to the people there that His Spirit was falling upon them and saving and redeeming them. And so we can get bogged down by the, 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 what the Spirit does and doesn't do here. And I'm not trying to make light of that. We're just going to look at it in more detail later. What I'm trying to make point here is that the main point of this entire section of Scripture is that God was beginning to do a work in Samaria of saving lost souls. That God, through the work of the Spirit, was fulfilling the Great Commission that He provided for His people in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. That when you receive the Spirit, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And this is a sign of God's fulfillment of the third thing named there, and that is Samaria. Now, in light all of all of this, what do we walk away with? We walk away with the fact that salvation of Lord Jesus Christ cannot and must not be separated from the empowering of the Spirit in our lives. And if the Spirit of God dwells within us, then the Spirit of God can empower us to do miraculous and wonderful and amazing things. This one was mentioned to me earlier, but I think it would be worth looking at in Ephesians chapter 1. It says, In Him also we have heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, that believed in Him, or sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantor of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of His glory. The Spirit of God is not only what brings us to repentance through conviction, but is our guarantor, our seal. But also I want to say this, is what we saw in Matthew chapter 10 is the way that we should walk away this morning 
feeling about the work of the Spirit in our lives. Matthew chapter 10. We read this earlier. Verse 19. Speaking of the persecution of the disciples, we see God working through that same persecution in Acts chapter 8. And fortunately and so unfortunately at the same time, we live in a society where the persecution is not the same for us today. As we have talked about for the last few weeks, there are certainly believers all over the world that are being persecuted and martyred for their faith. This calls us to cry out for them, to pray for them, to try to share in their suffering by being a part of their ministry in some way or another. But as people that walk out of this door in just a moment and we go throughout life's circumstances and situations where possible persecution could arise or just living life could arise, we should have the same dependency upon the Spirit as if we were going through persecution in this time. I would argue that our dependence upon the Spirit should be even greater in the good moments than it is the bad, but we could all can attest to the fact that that is not the case. That so often in our lives, we go throughout our days without even acknowledging the fact that the Spirit of God lives within us and empowers us to do God's will, which is a shame for us. Luckily, there's grace and mercy to be found in Christ, even for those who have believed and trusted in Him. But let's look at these verses together in 19. It says, When they deliver you over, do not be anxious of how you are to speak, what you are to say, for what you say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. We have the Spirit of God that dwells within us. And regardless of this moment being a miraculous, unique moment in the life of the Samaritans, or the Spirit falling upon those who believe instantly. When the Spirit falls on His people, it should be a miraculous thing, and a miraculous moment in which we then live in dependence upon God to not only save us from our sins, which we cannot do in ourselves, but to be our reliance and our hope and our guarantee in all of life's circumstances. Let's pray together. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you. God, we pray that you would do a work in our lives that only you can do, and there would be a total reliance upon your spirit. God, we thank you for being a God who answers prayers. God, my, my prayer now would be, as we reflect on these truths this morning through song, that it would potentially even lead us to prayer and dependence upon you. In your son's holy name.